promise to us, our Creator has bestowed on humanity the gift of marriage. God designed marriage to unite one man by birth to one woman by birth in a lifelong covenant of fidelity to one another. But when God's good gift falls to people flawed by sin, all manner of trouble results. The depths of physical and relational intimacy that marriage yields serve to expose our brokenness. Where our differences are designed by God to mesh like well-oiled gears, we insert the grit of toxic selfishness and unloving smallness. And in the end, death separates us, leaving one mate bereft and grieving a soul-crushing loss. Striving to ford the stream of this trouble, the church of Jesus Christ functions as something of a reclamation cooperative. We teach God's Word about marriage. We hold each other accountable to God's counsel. We grieve with those who lose a mate. And collectively, we enjoy the solid foundation of biblically ordered marriages that honor Christ. First, as we work with those who come into marriage through counsel and guidance and a wedding that acknowledges that covenant. And then, as we continue from there to continue building up marriages and seeing those marriages as they're standing on solid ground, effectively aiding and strengthening the church. As a church, we proclaim again and again that marriage matters. Marriage is an office by which we honor God by which we witness His redemptive power. It's an office by which we strive to raise up a new generation of Christ's followers by God's grace. So as we continue to grow in our knowledge of God honoring marriage from varying angles, we return today in our journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week we looked at the first seven verses of this chapter. Let's remind ourselves of that context Paul writes to them, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations, literally not to touch a woman. It was a slogan, a phrase that they were apparently using. It is good for one not to have sexual relations. Very connected to their dualistic world. Maybe some bent toward asceticism. And Paul answers them, verse 2, with but. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man literally should be having his own wife. And each woman should be having her own husband. So some were commending celibacy within marriage. And Paul says, no, that is not what marriage is for. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's some very direct, frank, helpful, close-to-home counsel from the Apostle. 
it is understood that this is how marriage is to work. This is to be loving, mutuality, working together, perceiving that I do not demand my rights and possess my body, but rather give it away and yield it. Verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Remember, originally it is this I say by way of concession. So the ESV may be trying to push us a bit to seeing the this as a concession going down below, pointing to below, but rather I think it points to what has been said. This I say by way of concession. That is, this, I think, is just simply saying there are times when it is appropriate not to be involved physically as a husband and wife, but that is for the case of prayer. That is with mutual understanding that this is a limited period of time. I make that concession. There at that point, okay. But that's not the point of marriage. And you're not getting closer to God by doing what you're doing. So let's get this corrected. Now on that point, I wish that all, verse 7, were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of the other. There's nothing wrong with being single. It is a good thing. That is where Paul is at. And I would be happy if others were in that state, but there's a gifting from God. There's a gift of singleness that some have, and I think would rightly say that few have. There is a gift of marriage that comes from God and is to be received and celebrated. Now, in verses 8 through 16, Paul provides counsel about marriage to three groups of members of the assembly. With each group, he states a general Christian rule. Here is the basic direction, the basic instruction. And then he gives each of those rules a qualifier. So notice this in the text. Notice the but if. Verse 9. You'll see there it begins with but if. So here's the rule, verse 8. But if, a qualifier. Verse 10, here's the rule. Verse 11, you see it there again. But if, another qualifier. Another difference from the rule. And then again in verse 15. So after verses 12 through 14, here's the rule. We have another but if. Another qualifier to that rule. An exception, we might even say, to the rule. So the general rule of Christian conduct we find in verse 8 is this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. To the unmarried, I would cautiously commend the view that Paul is speaking here to widowers by using this word unmarried, masculine idea, connected to the widows. And I would commend that on three quick points here. This is suggested by the fact that Paul uses a male-female symmetry through the entire passage. That symmetry is broken here if the unmarried is just anybody who's unmarried, probably referring to widowers. Uh, secondly, why distinguish widows from the unmarried unless he's thinking of unmarried men and unmarried women? Uh, the widows are unmarried, clearly. And then thirdly, Paul will have much to say to singles who are yet to marry later in the chapter. 
So I think we could at least suggest that he's speaking here to widowers and to widows. But in any case, it really doesn't make a big difference because it applies to those who are single in any event. So what's the general rule? Remain single. Don't remarry if you've lost a mate. Paul almost certainly lost a wife. If he did not lose her to death, then he very likely lost her when he became a Christian. That would have been typical in that day for one to walk away from that relationship as a game changer. And indeed it was. We don't know, we're not certain that Paul ever was married, but knowing his circumstances, his wealth, his Roman citizenship, his connections, a male Israelite, almost certain that he had been married somewhere before. And it would kind of make sense here, wouldn't it, if he's talking to widowers and widows and saying, remain like me. It's really best, the rule is, don't seek to remarry if you've lost a mate. Now the exception, verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It literally reads to burn, but I think this is the right idea. I think the burning here is not a burning in hell or something like that, but a burning of desire. So he's saying there's there's widows, there's widowers in the congregation. His instruction would be remain as you are. That's really what is best. But if there is strong temptation and difficulty with sexual propriety, then it's right for you to pursue marriage. In fact, he would even counsel it. Marriage is good, Paul is saying, especially for those who battle strong sexual desires. Those desires are God-given, but they're designed for expression within the bonds of marriage. So if this restriction is substantially problematic to your spiritual walk, this restriction of sexuality to marriage, then it is right for you to be aiming toward marriage, even as a widow and a widower. Why is remaining unmarried better than remarriage for those who have lost a mate? Paul does not answer that here but it, it's almost certainly related to what he says in chapter 7 and verse 32. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. That is, I think, rightly understood, not to press you to remain single, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, ultimately, Paul doesn't really explain why he's counseling widows, perhaps even widowers, but even singles, to consider remaining single. Well, one thing I think we should understand that misses us a bit here is it's estimated that one in five women in the Roman Empire died in childbirth. So life expectancy for a woman, and with that statistic in mind, life expectancy for a woman was around 30 years of age. 
So you're not, don't think of these octogenarians filling up the Corinthian church and he's addressing these 80-year-olds to ask themselves whether they're driven sexually and should get married or not. He's probably talking to very fairly young women, many of whom potentially would have even been of childbearing age. Now men might have lived longer because of the childbearing peace, as was so dangerous in that day, but at any rate, he speaks to such individuals and says, here's where you are. You've lost a mate. It is good. It is right. In the service of God, there can actually be advantage to you remaining as you are. So consider that. That's good, like I am. That's my example. But if this is a temptation and a serious challenge to your spiritual walk, Marriage is good. Seek it. It's not a command here. It's more proverbial. I mean, it kind of hits us. It's sort of, you want to talk to Paul and say, you act like this is just a simple thing, that somebody just decides to get married. It's not that simple, not that easy. But I think he speaks in a sense proverbially here. Aim toward that. Strive toward that as God allows. And in all things, we rest in his purposes. A widow is certainly free to marry. Verse 9 and verse 39. Make that very clear. So his counsel, first of all, honoring God as widows, widowers and widows, if widowers is the case, but again, in any event. Secondly, honoring God as married couples. Verse 10, the principle. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Not I, but the Lord. That is, Paul draws directly from something that Jesus taught his followers. The teaching of Jesus was preserved both orally and in written records, and Paul lets us know that he is basing what he is saying here upon the teaching of Jesus. Those sayings of Jesus are no more authoritative than the words of the Holy Spirit inspired in the written text. God is the source of each of those sources of words. But Paul is careful to identify his source, and in this case, that's Jesus, who said, for instance, Matthew 5, whoever, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Or Matthew 19, the Pharisees came up and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I'm drawing from the words of Christ. And so the rule here for married Christian couples is this. The wife should not separate from her husband. Quick time out here because we are going... Did I read that? Oh, that's where the second half is. It disappeared. There we go. So let me continue with Jesus saying, Why then did Moses command one give a certificate of divorce to, to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So back to the word to married couples, verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, time out here, this word separate sends us off in the wrong direction. We live in a culture where there is something known as legal separation. There is sort of a status and a category of separation that's legally binding and is distinct from divorce. This word just means divorce. In their culture, this word separate was even used in technical documents to indicate divorce repeatedly. Our society, our concept of legal separation is unknown to them as was the idea that you would take your marriage before a judge or a lawyer and write up papers that were official. For them, divorce was basically handled between the couple. Now, there might be a document that was signed for some reason, but many times a couple would simply just walk away from each other. It was informal. So when he says a wife should not separate from her husband, he's saying exactly what Jesus is saying. Do not divorce. Divorce is not the right approach to marriage. God designed marriage as a lifelong relationship, Paul says. Stay with that in the church. Stay with that. And I think in that light, may it be widely known that Eden Baptist Church is in the business of building up marriages, not taking them apart. May God help us develop a culture that rejoices in marriage, that serves to strengthen marriages, that honors God's good design in all that we do. It is a broken world. We are broken people. There are trials and troubles and difficulties that people encounter within the context of this church or that bring to this church or take on to another. That's a reality of this world, but here's the stake in the ground. It's meant to be permanent. And we want to labor together as an assembly to build up marriages. And I would say, if privately, quietly, you're saying there's no hope in mine. There's just no hope in mine. There is. Don't give up. It's worth holding on to. It's worth holding on to for your sake, for the sake of those around you, but above all, for the glory of Christ. There's something in this that can be overcome by God's grace. Lifelong marital fidelity is God's good plan. That said, we live in a real world, not an ideal one. And in that real world, divorce happens. Do not divorce your husband, he says. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. But if she does, this reads most naturally as a concession to reality, as a concession to human weakness. This is no excuse for divorce, but divorce happens. And in such cases, remarriage is not an option, only reconciliation. And we can see this a little bit more clearly when we understand that their divorce, divorce in their culture, was informal. 
One could just simply pack up bags and go away, and that was a divorced couple. So in that situation, being reconciled to your husband was, was maybe in some ways a more direct line than we have today with all the legal pieces to it. If she does leave, if she does divorce her husband, for whatever reason, he doesn't get into the reasons, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That's the rule, or the exception, rather, to the rule. Now, Paul does not address legitimate cases of divorce, such as he will in a few verses. He does not answer all of our questions. He only addresses people who should not divorce their mates, but do. In that case, remarriage is not an answer, is not an option. And the husband should not divorce his wife. We could read that to say, apply everything that I've just said to the woman equally to the husband. It's mutuality here. It goes in both directions. So let me talk to the children here specifically to you, to you children who are among us here. If one of the adults of our church loses a mate, loses a husband or a wife, and then later marries someone else, is that okay? It is. God says that's fine. When death ends a marriage, then it's okay for someone to marry someone else. That's a good thing. It can be a good thing. But let me ask a second question, children. Is it okay for a husband or wife to divorce their mate and marry someone else? God is saying, no, it is not. Now we can get into nuances of that, of course, and to what constitutes legitimate marriage or, or divorce as we take the varying views, but here, no. So those who are married within our assembly, the moms and dads that you see, should remain married. That's what's right. That's what's good. That's what God desires. And if your mom and dad are married, depending on how old you are, you're growing increasingly aware of the fact that sometimes that's not always easy. That that marriage relationship has some challenges once in a while. Some of you more than others in your homes. But remember this. If you see your mom and dad living together in marriage, that's a good thing. If you see your pastors their hus as husbands and wives, your Bible teacher married, the adults of this church married husband and wife, living together lifelong together as husband and wife, that's a good thing. That's a blessing to you as children. That's a blessing to us as adults. That's a blessing to this church. It is the gift of God. It is His gracious mercy to us that there are men and women married in a covenant of fidelity, lifelong fidelity, that will not be broken by anything but death. That is God's grace. It is God-honoring. Three, honoring God when married to an unbeliever. Paul now picks up this challenging issue, which apparently was troubling the Corinthian church. They wrote to him about this issue. And he says, to the rest I say, contextually, to the rest I say, can only mean here, to those who are married to an unbeliever. So I'm not talking about those who are unmarried. I'm not talking about those who have lost a mate. I'm not talking to those who are married as a Christian husband and wife. But to those of you who are married to an unbeliever. So un undoubtedly his focus here is, 
this couple was married before they knew of Christ. One of the partners trusted Jesus as Savior and now has a new Lord, a new identity, a new focus in life under the Lordship of Christ. Should that believing mate divorce his or her unbelieving partner? This is the question that was raised, and Paul addresses that now. That's the rest to whom he's speaking. Now he says here, I, not the Lord. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. How do we understand that? We're going to take just a quick break here, because I think, or sideline, because I think it's really important. Scholars who reject the Bible as God's Word often claim that the apostles said whatever they wanted to say, and then they blamed Jesus for it. That's a negative way of saying it, but they, they just made their point and then claimed that it was the Word of Jesus. Oh, well, here we have solid evidence that the apostles did not operate that way. Paul does not need to say this. I say not the Lord, but he is very painstakingly careful to explain his source. However, since the Scriptures are breathed out by the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 3.16, what Paul writes here is just as authoritative as anything Jesus ever said. The words are equally authoritative because they are orchestrated overseen and directed by the Holy Spirit. So this is not Paul saying, I've got this point of advice, I may be right, I may not be right. We should not take it that way, but rather just that he's being painstakingly careful to say, I speak here not about something that Jesus himself spoke about. So this text is God's word. Paul's simply careful to identifying his source, which he mentions at the very end of this chapter in verse 40. So I think if we see it rightly, we understand it that way. Identifying source, but Holy Spirit, Jesus, it doesn't matter. It's the Word of God. And so now he speaks God's truth as he writes to them. I say this, verse 12, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. There's a strong possibility that some individuals in the church believe that purity commended divorcing an unmarried mate. I mean, think of that in light of verse 15 of chapter 6. You can see the reasoning. 15 of 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Could we not then draw the conclusion from that, that cohabiting with one who is not indwelt by the Spirit renders that marriage illegitimate, and it should be severed, it should be ended? Is marriage to an unbeliever a mixing of light and darkness, fellowship between one who is united to Christ and one who is a child of Satan? No, says Paul. Leave it to the Corinthians to worry about being holy when they shouldn't be and not worrying about holiness when they should. 
But he's saying, no, no, you've got this wrong. Do not divorce your unsaved mate. Here's the reason, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So why? The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. So let's take a born-again woman who is married to an unbeliever. How should she view her marriage? She is not defiled by her husband's lost state. Rather, her union with Christ renders the relationship, for lack of a better term, legitimate. Now a Christian woman is free to willingly is not free to willingly marry an unbeliever. That's not the point. The point's once you're in that marriage and this man is not a believer, your relationship to Christ makes this a legitimate marriage. But in view here then again is a married woman who comes to Christ. Even still, the principle applies to a believer who willingly marries an unbeliever. Same principles will apply. So in her spiritual light, she, her spiritual light is not snuffed out by his darkness. Rather, her light shines on him. And so Paul says, stay married. In fact, he says that for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. What does that mean? How is an unbeliever made holy by marriage to a believer? Do you imagine that Paul is contradicting everything he's ever written about salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone? No. Do you imagine that Paul is denying everything the Bible teaches about salvation apart from works? Of course not. Is salvation then achieved by the good fortune of marriage to a Christian? Of course not. There's only one possibility other than that ridiculous line of thinking. And that's that he uses the word holy here in a unique sense. And the word holy does have a range of meaning. And that's what was going on here. He is made holy by his wife, Paul using the word holy in a unique sense. Her husband is not holy in his relationship to God because of his marriage to a Christian woman. Verse 16 will make that crystal clear. He is, after all, an unbeliever. But her marriage to him is pure in God's eyes. It's legitimate, so it's right for her to remain with him and to give herself to him. The case here, because of her knowledge of Christ in this union, is not like the case with the prostitute, chapter 6, 15, and 16. Don't think of your marriage in those terms. Remain married to this man willing to remain married to you, or to this woman willing to remain married to you. The end of verse 14, he says, Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. The one flesh relationship in marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is legitimate and should be nurtured. That much we understand. Therefore, the fruit of that relationship is legitimate 
and should be nurtured. Again, the children of such a union are not saved from hell because one parent is saved. The child is not rendered holy in that sense. But as the marital bed is rendered God-honoring by virtue of the believing spouse, so any offspring of that union is rendered God-honoring by virtue of that believing parent. And by the way, that's all this verse means. We have brothers and sisters in gospel-preaching churches who take this phrase, your children are holy, as justification for infant baptism. That is an insertion into this passage that will not work, and I'll say no more about that this week, perhaps in the future. But per pattern now, Paul says that's the principle. If the unbelieving mate is willing to remain with you, stay married. The marriage is pure in that sense, in the eyes of God. Love that unsaved mate. Live for that unsaved mate. Give yourself away. Don't hold anything back. It will come between you in many, many ways, but be a faithful mate to that unbeliever. Here's the exception, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, that means divorces, let it be so. As in verse 10, separate is divorce with no difference in that culture between separation and divorce. This is a mate who simply walks away and says, I'm no longer married to you. If an unbelieving spouse does that, the believer should not fight the decision. By way of qualification, Paul adds, verse 15, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Enslaved, or the word could be translated bound, means the believer is not responsible to fight for the survival of the marriage. Now remember, Paul is addressing a church in which some were advocating celibacy in marriage. Others thought a Christian should divorce an unbelieving spouse. The bent here that he's addressing is the ascetic bent. That we should put sexuality aside in order to draw closer to Christ. Paul is correcting that in all of this, but he's not dealing with people that are really anxious to know if they can get remarried. That is not what he's addressing whatsoever. There's not a word of it here. That's an important consideration, of course. But Paul does not address and thus neither confirms nor denies the believer's freedom to remarry after being divorced by an unbeliever. It's, not ju it's just not the issue here. So if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother's sister is not enslaved, not bound to that marriage. So I, I would just suggest that verse 15 not be used as a proof text for the right to remarry after this situation. That's more an issue from other texts. This text really does not speak to that point. Back to verse 15. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. I believe that means God has called you to live peaceably in holy matrimony with an unbelieving mate. And God has called you to live peaceably with an unbeliever whose rejection of Christ leads to a rejection of you and your marriage. In that relationship of peace, do not divorce an unbelieving mate 
and seek to win that person to Christ. Verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The hope is that by remaining faithful to your unsaved mate, he or she will one day come to Christ as Savior. The most earnest prayer and the deepest desires cannot make that happen. But God can. And there are times when He does. I've known a number of women and a handful of men who lived their entire lives longing for their mates to come to know Christ and it had never happened or it still hasn't happened at this point. More rarely, but I've also seen this desire fulfilled. We don't run the universe. All we can do is hope. All we can do is live an example of fidelity and we can pray. Pray persistently that God will hear that cry and give light to the unbelieving mate. So, to those who are not married, perhaps have lost mates, to those who are married as a Christian couple and to those who are married to unbelieving spouse, we have instruction from the Word of God concerning how to adorn marriage, how to look at marriage. To varying degrees, each of these three lines of counsel, if you think about it, are made necessary by the effects of sin upon our relationships. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God, but we come to it or we look at it from afar as broken people. In our humanity, in our corruption, we lust, we fight, we offend, we ignore, we harm, and in the end we suffer the wages of sin, which is death. But we gather today as a church in hope, because we know that our Lord came to redeem us, He came to sanctify us. And it means that He came to take this issue of marriage and as much of trouble as we've made of it as a culture, as a people in the history of humanity, God uses that relationship to build healthy homes and strong churches and by His grace, stronger societies. I don't know how you don't get troubled to know that in 1970, 70% of homes in Minnesota were occupied by married couples. And today that's fallen to 49%. We mess with God's plan. We mess with our own health. But our high calling as believers is going to then put us at great odds with the society around us. We will not pursue the wisdom of the world. We will not have the approval of the world as we think in these narrow terms about what marriage should be. But as we take those narrow terms, not because we're narrow-minded, but because it is the counsel of the God who created it and gave us this gift, we know the joy of it. We know the blessings of it. We receive those benefits. So our response is not rooted in the world's approval. Our response is rooted in our bridegroom who is making us new creatures in union with Him. 
He is helping those who are not married to find their security, their trust, and their rest in Christ. To not give way to sexual immorality, but rather to put that good thing in itself on the altar of sacrifice to Christ. He is teaching us as married couples to learn to give ourselves away. To not hold on to rights. To not hold on to my selfish desires. But to let them go in love. Living for someone else. He is teaching us how to know Him as the great bridegroom. So may God continue to shine light on His saving purposes in the marriages of this church. They exist under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May we celebrate that, rejoice in that. May we continue to shine light on His saving purposes in the fidelity of the singles in our church, the widows. And may we also shine light in the joy that we see then together as an assembly teaching our young people to know the Lord. May our obedience to His counsel reflect that we rejoice to know that our Bridegroom has chosen us as His own and that He loves us with a perfect and infinite love. If you are separated from Christ today, that's the rest of your soul. That's where your soul will find its rest, in Him and in Him alone. In that analogy, nothing sexual to it, but in that analogy, He is our bridegroom and the church His bride. There is a fullness, a rest, and a hope that we find in Him that leads us to think differently about every area of our life. And I would encourage you to come to Him in faith and trust today. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, who know Him as our bridegroom, we gather at this table for intimacy, for communion, to fellowship in the presence of Christ, to commune with Him at this table and therefore with one another as His bride. May He aid us in doing that as we bring glory to Him and draw close. Father, help us to this end. Direct us here as we receive these elements, as we consider them again and strive to be faithful to your call upon us as a church. Bless those marriages that are in trouble today. Bless those marriages that thrive to keep them on track. Bless those who are not married and long to be, and those who are not married, and though they are at peace with that, find that situation difficult. Lord, meet us where we are. Teach our children the beauty of marriage. And as we gather around this table... Lord, continue to teach us that You are our Bridegroom, that we, the Bride of Christ, come to commune with You. Through Jesus we pray.